0: Okay, we're going to continue to study uh, Revelation chapter 21. Let me just say, as I get into this, uh, now for at least two, maybe three messages, I've I've gotten into some things that are um, not familiar to most all of us. Um, But I can tell you this, Uh, when it comes to teaching the Bible, understanding anything about this present life or the world to come, we do not have but one place that we can go to find answers to any question that we may have, and that's the Bible. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is... um, (coughs) how important it is to appreciate the will of God. And so when you study the Bible and you try to discern what God's will was originally when he created the heavens and the earth and created man in his own image, I can tell you, I think, with absolute confidence that God never intended for the events uh, to occur that did occur in uh, Genesis chapter 3, which was the fall. I know that the Bible talks about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, but the way you have to understand statements like that in the Bible is that God doesn't learn anything. He's always known. But there's a difference between always knowing uh, from eternity past, the far reaches of eternity future. There's a difference between that and what what his will was. There's a difference. And I can tell you that God Never, um, um, he never wanted Adam and Eve to use their free will against his will. He never wanted that. But that's exactly what happened. And so everything that we read in the Bible addresses this problem, which is why we have. Emphasize many times in this church that the ultimate threat of every human being is the freedom to choose. It's the freedom to make a choice. And since the fall in the Garden of Eden, man has gone his own way trying to uh, have his own paradise the way he conceives paradise to be for himself, which is totally selfish, totally self-centered, has nothing to do with God. The will of man has nothing to do with the will of God, nothing. It has everything to do with man and what he wants. And so this journey that we're taking here in studying the Bible is to think more carefully about the will of God and his original plan. And so he never intended the things that were going to take place. But because he doesn't learn by surprise what man would eventually choose to do, he made provision way in advance uh, for our redemption, because that was His will. His will was for us to be saved. His will was for us to be joint heirs in Christ Jesus in all things. God's will was that the material world and the things that He created would never be uh, <clears throat> become a source of idolatry where we would be more interested in the things that he created than we were in the creator. But that's exactly what has happened uh, in the world today. We worship stuff. We worship uh, uh, the things of the world. We love the world. We sure do. And love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and pride of life, doesn't have anything to do with God. It has to do with the self-centeredness and selfishness of man. And so the whole Bible is about this. And so um, there are some things that are are rather interesting when you think about it. like, for instance, the Apostle Paul being caught up into the third heaven and and seeing things, experiencing things in the presence of God in heaven that he was strictly forbidden to talk about. It was John, not oh. the Apostle John, you No, said, the Apostle Paul. Was it Paul to heaven? The, the, the Paul died; he went to heaven. I'm sorry, Okay, all right, so I'm talking about two different people. And so Paul was taken up into heaven, and and he was strictly instructed that it would be unlawful for him to even talk about what he saw. And that leads us back to something that we mentioned too, uh, the unfolding revelation of God's will. It's an unfolding revelation and it's very plain in scripture when you read the Old Testament when you read the New Testament Uh, Daniel was told to seal the book that no one was going to be able to understand the future until the time came that it would be proper to understand this unfolding revelation. And then Paul uh, talked about mysteries hidden in ages past. Uh, So this is an unfolding revelation. Well, as uh, George was alluding to there, uh, the Apostle John was really the one that God had in mind when it came to revealing What Paul saw, it was not time for believers to be thinking about those things uh, in the days of the Apostle Paul at that time because the main thing was the gospel, the need to get saved, the need to understand the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so the focus of all of our experience in terms of studying in the Bible and the future is pretty much locked into uh, the, the church dispensation and a better understanding of the law and how it's a standard that no man can ever uh, 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 accomplish, uh, If you sin in one point, you're guilty of everything. And so so Paul, in despair over this realization, uh, cried out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And, of course, he says and explains it in the following chapter um, uh, Romans chapter 8. And I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this is the glorious gospel message is the Lord would do something that would make it possible for us to not have the burden of keeping the law, which is works. And so the gospel is that it's the gift of God. Righteousness is a gift. That's the only way you can have it. You have to come to Jesus Christ. You have to believe that you cannot keep his law. You could never be like God through works. You could never please him. You could never go to heaven unless something radically changed your nature so that you did not even have the nature to sin. You didn't have a desire to sin. And so um, Paul developed this to some extent and what's become a favorite verse of mine in Colossians chapter 1 verse 22 uh, how the, the Lord's gift to us was going to be such that we would be holy unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. How could this be? I mean, how could this ever happen? Well, because God said it. He said that this is the way he would view us. But the whole old uh, New Testament message of the gospel and the power of his death uh, and the shedding of his blood to take away our sin would be such that... Uh, in, again, his unfolding revelation, which involved Pentecost. I'm telling you, it's one of the most overlooked um, points in biblical history is the difference between the cross of Calvary and Pentecost. I'm telling you that the cross of Calvary does not equip us for living in the presence of a holy God. All it does is pay the sin debt. It doesn't change the nature. It does not. The death of Christ on the cross does not change our nature. As a matter of fact, uh, the Apostle John in, in 1 John chapter 1 talks about the fact that Uh, Even after we get saved, we're going to continue to sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so it's very important to understand these very distinct points in time and what these things ultimately mean. And so when you get to Pentecost... It is really sort of the other side of the coin of salvation. Something had to be done about the crime. Restitution had to be made. And Jesus Christ paid the price. He sure did for our sin. It was on precious blood. And it completely wiped the slate clean in terms of sins, past, present, and future, until we died. But I'm telling you, the cross of Calvary and the preaching of the simple gospel message when it's limited to the cross is a mistake. It's a mistake. It doesn't help us enter into the perfection that we have to have to live in the presence of the Holy God. And so... It's the gift of his righteousness, and he just gives it to us. And he does it out of mercy, and he does it out of grace, these two things. And so Galatians 2.20 has more to do with Pentecost than it does anything else. It says, I'm crucified with Christ... That does include the cross in that uh, the sin debt has been paid. But he says, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul is, in the latter part of that verse, talking about Pentecost. Pentecost. And so if you do not understand that Galatians 2.20 has to do with both of these events, then you're missing something that's critically important. And so um, there are things in the scriptures that are puzzling. Apart from studying very carefully this unfolding revelation Of the ultimate will of God. And the question is. Is God wise enough? Is God powerful enough? To have his original will done. As it relates to you and me. But what was his original will? It was for. Adam and Eve to never sin that was his original will that they would never sin he created them in his image and he wanted perfect fellowship with them a oneness between himself and them for all eternity he wanted them to have children and he wanted those children to be the same way that they would be one with Christ and that they would Adam and Eve would teach their children in such a way that they would... The idea of sinning was unthinkable, and this was God's original will. Now, there are other little details connected to all of this that you need to take a look at from time to time. The question has been asked, uh, why... uh, Can't the angels that sinned uh, have an opportunity to get saved just like we do? And, I mean, the Lord died on the cross. Did he die on the cross for the angels? Or did he die on the cross just for man? Well, you're going to look a long time trying to prove that God died on the cross for the angels because he didn't. He didn't. And so the question is why? And the reason is because they were created in the light. They were created with a full knowledge of God. Man is born in darkness From birth. He's not born in the light. He's born in darkness and in ignorance. And the ultimate issue in the whole Bible is the will, not only of men, but of angels. And the angels had a will. And they had an opportunity to choose to serve the Lord or rebel against him, as Lucifer did, and the demons that fell along with him, a third of the angels, matter of fact, the Bible talks about that a third of the angels that fell, and so the gospel had nothing to do with the angels, and so. The Lord goes on to say at a certain point, I'd have to look for where the reference is, but he's talking about uh, the subject of marriage, and uh, the question is, if you've been married several times, who will your husband be in heaven? And the Lord's answer was, uh, we're going to be like the angels. And the angels do not marry. They do not have children. I didn't say that. God did. The one who wrote the book said that. He said, we're going to be like the angels. Well, there's a a sense, if you follow the logic of this, that the cross of Calvary had nothing to do with the angels. If you say, I don't believe that, I don't know where you can come up with that conclusion. I really don't. Because there's not one word in the Bible from beginning to end that indicates that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross had anything to do with angels. We've got statements like, I think it's 1 Peter, uh, where it talks about the angels desiring to look into the gospel, Uh, you've got the Old Testament figurines of the archangels with their wings spread out over the Ark of the Covenant, which is all a symbol of uh, the death of Christ. The Ark is a coffin. And the mercy seat that was on top of it was where the blood was sprinkled. And the archangels are transfixed just looking at it. Just looking at it. But there's not one thing about it that has anything to do with them directly. It has to do with man. And there's no way that you can say that's not true. Because the death of Christ on the cross had nothing to do with the angels. And so the angels that did not sin... I think, gives us some insight into God's original will. His original will was that we be like the angels, that we would be one with God, that we would make that choice never to do anything against the will of God, and the angels did. And I believe as they are transfixed just looking at that ark, it's a marvel to them that man could be so insane as to think that they were capable of life without God and death and eternity without God. And I think they they looked down at it and, and they were just it was beyond their ability to to comprehend how could people be that way. That's the way we are. To this day, we're sinners. And we love our sin. And so when it comes to the unfolding revelation of God the Apostle John gives us insight into the far reaches of that question, the will of God. And we're reading it right here, Revelation 21. And I'm telling you that God's unfolding revelation is not confined to what he did upon Calvary, uh, from God's perspective, the way He is looking at His unfolding plan of redemption, everything begins at resurrection from the dead in His mind. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. And here again, I, I'd like to sit down and talk with you anytime you want to sit down and talk about some of these things. I, I don't know everything. I, I'm not trying to teach these things as though there's absolutely no other way to think about it. I'm just telling you that if you're going to think different, at least come to me with Scripture in, in hand and your finger on it to show me that these conclusions are not true. Then we have a basis for laying aside uh, uh, conclusions that are inaccurate. Um, And we talked about this at Cottage prayer meeting Friday night. Uh, uh, The Bereans were more noble than those from Thessalonica because they did what? They searched the scriptures. Why do they search the scriptures? Because the reference point wasn't even Paul. And it's not me either. The reference point is the word of God. And so you've got to go to the scripture. And so if there's anything that is said in these Sunday school lessons that trouble you, that are difficult to take in, all I ask you to do is read the scriptures. Study the scriptures. You tell me what it means. Um, And so I believe when we're resurrected from the dead, God, from that point, the past does not enter his mind. We didn't exist in his mind until we were raised from the dead. And when we were raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. That is what the Bible teaches. It's resurrection from the dead is the unfolding revelation of God that, that contains the glorious gospel message. Think about it. The glorious gospel message is that in all eternity to come, it will be impossible for us to sin because we'll be like him. The Apostle John said that. We know that when he comes, we're going to see him as he is, and we're going to be like him. We're going to be like Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ can't sin. And I'll tell you this, when we're resurrected from the dead, we're not going to be able to sin either. And I think a person will have a hard time saying that's not true. And so when we try to look into these two extremes that we've talked about, so great a death and so great salvation, the Lord is now taking us into a deeper understanding of so great salvation. But why is he doing that at the very end of the revelation from heaven? Why, why, is, why did he wait so long? Well, the reason is rather obvious. There's no need to think about eternity the future if you don't have the hope of even being there. And so the concentration of everything from Matthew until you get to the book of the Revelation concentrates on the cross of Calvary and the shed blood in payment for our sin. And it also focuses on Pentecost. And so this is what the book of Acts is is so so much about and is so important in our understanding and making the connection between Paul's teaching um, about the significance of Pentecost and that God gives us as a free gift his righteousness and clothes us as I'm going to fix and explain to you, in linen. Linen. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, and let me show you this. I'm sorry. Um, Hang on just a second. Yeah, it's Revelation 19, and let's look at um, verse 7, and I want to show you why it's really important to pay attention to words, very important. Verse 7 of Revelation 19, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come And his wife hath made herself ready. It's very important for you to understand too why the Lord told those questioners, the Pharisees, that when you get to heaven, we're going to be like the angels. There's not going to be any marriage or giving in marriage. It's not going to be a connection with what it was on this earth. Whether we like to believe that or not, doesn't matter. You have to go by the Bible. What the Bible has to say, that's what Jesus Christ said. In eternity future, there isn't but one husband that is ever presented to the church, and it's the bridegroom. It's Jesus Christ. Earthly marriage is a type of his desire to reverse what happened in the Garden of Eden where Eve decided she was going to play the harlot and leave what you might say the ultimate bridegroom and it's God and go her own way. She was the first harlot in the Bible, Eve was. And what she did when she sinned was the practice of spiritual adultery against God. That's what it was. And, uh, and so from that time on, the thing that had to happen was the issue of death. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But God so loved the world that the message of the Bible is he was willing to die in our place. And so the killing of the lambs, the killing of the lambs was an Old Testament type of the death of Christ upon the cross of Calvary. And he died in our place. And so Adam and Eve were clothed in sheepskin. And you can't do that without shedding of blood. But in eternity future, and this is why I'm taking the time to develop this so that you can get a handle on it a little better. When it comes to the bride in eternity future, there is no sheepskin. There's no blood. It's linen cloth. No blood associated with it. And it's the same thing symbolically as it is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But in eternity future in resurrection from the dead... He clothes us in his righteousness, and blood has nothing to do with it. Death has nothing to do with it. And that's why it's linen. And so in verse 7 of Revelation uh, Revelation 19, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. That's important. Clean and white. That's a picture of the righteousness of God. But I'm telling you, in the resurrection of the dead, the blood, I know this is going to be hard to process because this is something that is at the very end of the unfolding revelation from heaven. And the reason there's a resistance to this kind of teaching is because of this. We've never really thought about these things before. But it's in the book. I didn't write this God wrote this, and there's significance to everything that he said and every word that he chose to use in revealing these things. The righteousness that we're going to have in resurrection from the dead is the righteousness of God as though we had never sinned. And in his mind, we did not exist prior to resurrection from the dead. There's not going to be any memory of it. He said so. He also said we wouldn't have any memory of it. It would be forgotten. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just read it beginning at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. Now, pay attention to these words. Wherefore, henceforth, in the future. Know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The old things are passed away. Everything has become new. Now here's the question. Is God wise enough and powerful enough To have this kind of will. And his unfolding revelation that his will would be such that he would actually have what he originally wanted. Well, what did he originally want? He originally wanted man to be created in his image. And to never sin against him. Is God able to do that for you and me? And could it be that there's so great salvation is such that this memory of what we did, the unthinkable, that we would massacre the Savior of the world, that we would mar his visage more than that of any man, That we would hate the truth. That we would hate the light. And that we would put him through such humiliation and shame. Is God able to do away with all of that in such a way that in his mind it never happened? That's where I'm going with this. you may not you know think this is where Revelation chapters 19 through 22 is taking us, but I'm telling you, the last revelation from God is in this section. And why? Is it at the very last? Well, it's because we're at a point in time. We're in the last days, folks. We're looking very shortly at eternity. And the Lord is showing us something about his capability and what he's able to do. And this is what he's able to do is to take that clay that was marred, Jeremiah chapter 18, and put it back on the potter's potter's wheel and make us again a new vessel, new vessel. And that vessel would not be marred at all. It would be perfect after his will. That's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Chapter 18. And so <clears throat> I think that in the future we need to think a little bit more carefully about Pentecost and the unfolding revelation of God from heaven. And I think that as we do, we're going to understand a little better Jeremiah chapter 3. I want to take you to that. Because here again, I didn't say this. It's in the book. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16. And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land In those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it. Neither shall they visit it. Neither shall that be done any more. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means exactly what it says. And when it comes to this unfolding revelation from heaven, entering into the so great salvation, this is what is meant by, at least in the measure that God is pleased to show us these things, That eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. Can you imagine that? That God is this wise, this powerful. That his mercy and grace had this in view. That we would be like the angels that never sinned. And they didn't. Of those that chose not to. So to me, these things are very important considerations, things to think about. Let me see what I need to do here. Let's go back to Revelation, Revelation uh, chapter 21. Let's look at um, let's look at verse 10 of Revelation chapter twenty one, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the, the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like the jasper stone, clear as crystal. If you study a little bit on that jasper stone, it's a diamond. That's what uh, you learn. It's a diamond. I do not know but what, in tradition, when it comes to marriage on this earth, that's why a diamond is so much the focus of uh, people who get married giving their wife a diamond. It's because it came out of Scripture. The whole concept of marriage came out of the Bible. Uh, When the 60s took place, and the hippie culture... And people were educated out of the view that there is a God. They were simultaneously educated out of the view of the culture of Christianity. And so shacking up is a direct result of evolutionary thinking. And that's exactly what they started doing. Uh, fornication, uh, it was not viewed as sin. Nakedness was not viewed as sin. All of these conventions, all these aspects of Christian culture were cast out. And so people started living like animals. And logically so, because they were educated into the view that that's what we are. We're just animals. And in the biology book, It was actually presented exactly that way. I remember it vividly. Man is an animal. It's a statement in the humanistic biology books of the public education system. And um, so in eternity future... um, you see that a lot of these things that became a part or were a part of the Christian culture, it came from a study of the Bible. And uh, so it goes on to say in verse 12, and had a wall great and high. And he's talking about the New Jerusalem. And it had this wall great and high. And had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east side, three gates, on the north side, three gates, on the south side, three gates, and on the west side, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we've learned two things here. Well, three things, really. First of all, the Lord is focusing on this wall around the city. And he tells us it was great and high. Now, if you study the Bible... When it comes to walls, here's what you're going to find. It symbolizes something. What do you suppose it symbolizes? Well, the same thing the border wall down in Texas symbolizes it. It keeps people out that you don't want getting in. And consistent, all through Scripture, a wall... It carries the idea of security. That's what it is. The walls of your house, keeping the doors locked, it has to do with security. The walls of the house. A fence around your property is for security. And this is what it's a picture of it's a picture of the doctrine of eternal security. That's what it is. God loves symbols. And he doesn't throw them away just because we come to the end of his revelation and we enter into the new heaven and new earth. These things are precious to him. And forever we're going to remember that he is our eternal security. It's him. Jesus Christ is our eternal security. But it also tells us that these gates were the twelve tribes of Israel. They represented the twelve tribes of Israel. But then he, he, talks, he shifts to the foundation. The foundation. And lo and behold, it represents the twelve apostles. It says so. Verse 14, and the wall... Of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Why did God say it like that? So his focus is on the wall, his focus is on the 12 tribes of Israel, which is the wife of God, and then you have the foundations and the focus is on the Twelve Apostles. And they represented the, the foundation of what the Bible teaches. And that's what we learn when we study the significance and importance of the apostles and what they did. And I believe the Apostle Paul was Probably the one that God originally intended to take the place of Judas. And it was not Matthias. The Lord allowed it. But the Apostle Paul made it very clear that he was an apostle. And he was not the least of the apostles when it came right down to it. God used him to to write 14 out of 27 books of the New Testament. And uh, and so what we have here is really the Lord putting together Ephesians chapter two. If you think about it, Ephesians chapter two uh, talks about a wall of partition that seemed to separate the Jew and the Gentile. And so, if you make a little note somewhere to look at this at some later time. Uh, I think you'll see something of the significance of why the Lord brings together in the gates the twelve tribes as a Jew. The twelve apostles has to do with the bride of Christ, the church. The church. The church was the Gentile. Now, to really put it together and understand it, it's as simple as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, in the whole world, and there's only two groups of people in the Bible, Jew and Gentile. And he has made us one in himself by his blood on the cross of Calvary. He has brought us together and puts no difference between the Jew and the Gentile in his sight. And so when you come to the Lord and you receive the message of the gospel, he makes you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Jew and Gentile. Now in uh, Revelation twenty one, well, I think our time is gone, uh I guess I better stop right here. Uh, um, I think if you'll just uh, study some of these thoughts, uh, meditate on some of these things, the Lord wants us to enter into the glorious eternal future that he is able to provide. And he wants us to enter into his so great salvation. And that's what the closing chapters of Revelation do. They help us to enter into that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Brother Bill, will you dismiss us? Bill? Jenny, <coughs> will you dismiss us? Yeah. Thanks.